this week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, when you start doing this, there's a risk that your friends and colleagues could look at you and say, well, that's, you know, he's a sellout or, you know, he's just in it for the money or he doesn't, he's not into patient care anymore or something like that. It's not stuff that keeps me up at night, but the thing is when it gets extremely hard, you absolutely need to fully discard the, any fear of judgment, fully discard fear of failure in public, fear of failure in the culture of your physician network and stuff. Because if you're sort of imprisoned by those fears and anxieties, you just, there's no way you're going to be able to fully commit to the point where you're going to have any sort of takeoff of the business. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Looking forward to today's interview with founder of Primer. Primer helps patients understand their cancer and treatment options. It also helps clinical research teams amplify their trial with IRB-approved digital content. Basically, when you go to Primer, it says simple cancer explanations. And that, I think, is is incredibly needed. And I'm excited to talk to our guest, Dr. David Grew, a fellow Tulane grad. He's a radiation oncologist. David Grew, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm, I'm psyched. David, before, before, in case I embarrass myself anymore, did I pronounce everything correctly, including Primer, your name, you did. You got it all right. I've heard some people yeah. say primer. I think that's more like the British way. Yeah, I'm currently learning French, and so eyes are pronounced differently there as well in France. And sure. Uh, so yeah, I gotta check my pronunciation sometimes. My my French pronunciation is brutal, um, but we won't go into that. So David, I, I you know I like to start out these conversations with a little bit of background about yourself. Remind me though, what year did you graduate, Tulane? 2010. Okay. When when were you? 2007. So we, we overlapped by one year, I guess. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So you must have, the yeah. Katrina year, you must have headed over to Houston, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. was like the year I was applying. I was actually in public health school at Tulane during okay. Katrina. So I, I came back north for a semester. And then when I moved back to New Orleans in January, I was doing the Tulane public health classes, but I was mostly working with the health department down there in New Orleans. And I got really involved in some, it's a pretty cool like Katrina related research. And then I was just all in. So I applied to Tulane and got in and it just worked out great. I bet that was an incredible time to do. Did you do the MPH program? So you're doing I did. Yeah. I did. yeah. I, so I did one year of just MPH and then I rolled the rest into the first couple of years of med school. Yeah. It was a very cool time to be learning public health policy and stuff in the middle of this, this unfolding disaster. So it was really cool. And then to be seated right there in the the director of the health department's office in city hall to do this research was was just super interesting just getting kind of like a behind the scenes view into how these guys who were on the front lines trying to figure out how to deal with this disaster for patients who were or for citizens who were moving back to the city it was it was intense it was pretty interesting oh i bet yeah I, you know i had a similar experience david even though mine wasn't in the middle you know, med school was, uh, I was like a third year when Katrina hit. But before then, I did, I did the master's in pharmacology program at Tulane. Oh, yeah. I had friends who did that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I fell in love with New Orleans, 
went to Tulane. I was, I was actually planning on going back to Ohio for med school. And then I was just like, I can't leave the city. I, I fell in love with the city, you know? So you must've worked with Barbara Beckman. I don't know. I don't yes. go on too much of a tangent, but she's great. Yeah. She was the director of admissions when I was there, but I think she ran the pharmacology department and that master's, uh, when you were doing it. Yeah. She's fantastic. She, I think she wrote one of my letters of recommendation. She was kind of a mentor in the arm program for me. Well, uh, we could reminisce about Tulane all the, <laughs> the whole hour, but we'll spare our audience. So clearly you went to Tulane for med school. Tell us about where you trained for residency in radiation oncology. Sure. Yeah. So no program down there in New Orleans, unfortunately. So I went up to NYU and I did my residency there and then took a job in private practice back very close to where I grew up in Connecticut outside or in Hartford, Connecticut is where, where I work now. It's at a Yale affiliate cancer center called St. Francis Hospital. And it's been great. I mean, it's it took care of a lot of the patients who were the parents of kids I grew up with, some of the school teachers I had growing up. But it also has some affiliation with Yale. So there's there's an academic component to it. And then just being a private practice, it allows me and my partners to design our schedule. And it's basically enabled me to carve out time to do more innovative things and, and just kind of explore the world of building a side business. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think private practice lends itself to, I want to say we have like maybe some more problems to solve than academic guys sometimes. And it's it's great to have the opportunity to, to get creative and, and try something new. And so at the beginning of that journey, so where were you in your career when you started Primer? And, and was it something in your personal career that sparked the idea? It was. So I was, I started in 2020. I mean, it really kind of started because of the COVID pandemic. So I was about five years into private practice, which is I think when a lot of people start to kind of look around, you know, they've, they've got boards under their belt. Um, if they haven't paid it off completely, they put a significant dent in their, in their student loans. And you're kind of looking around like, is this going to be it? I just do this till I'm 65. Like, whoa. This is it. Um, and so right around when I was starting to have those kinds of existential thoughts uh, was when COVID hit. And obviously the world was turned upside down. But like the main observation, the key insight from COVID that sort of sparked my interest in building Primer was that these patients were now coming alone for a, a new consultation to learn about their cancer and what the treatments were going to be and the side effects and the, the outcomes and everything. So knowledge retention was extremely poor. It's, it's not good at a baseline, right? As you can imagine, new patient with cancer comes in and it's just like deer in headlights face to face with their mortality for the first time. It's, it's not an optimal, optimal environment for knowledge retention. But during COVID, it was totally exacerbated because patients had to come alone. And so there's no note taker there. There's no one there to kind of like cross check what the doctor said. So I just kind of, I really was very intentional about for every patient drawing out their exact situation on pen and paper. So for the lung cancer, I just draw the lungs. And I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, going all the way back to Tulane because I was teaching as a side gig during med school for money. So I just got very accustomed to using simple drawings and illustrations to make complex medical scenarios simple for people to understand. And so I was doing this routinely during COVID. And then some of my patients who were elderly were asking if they could keep those paper drawings. 
and take them home. And I'm looking at the paper and it's like this scribbled mess. I'm like, why do you want to keep this? And I'm like, well, I need to have something to show my family because I'm not going to remember all this. So I need some kind of memento to jog their memory so that they're not on the spot having to regurgitate all this really complex information. And that's when I had the idea, why don't we turn this into a digital asset that can be scaled? And it kind of took off from there. Yeah, it reminds me of a couple of things. One, I think you and I spoke about this before, but what is the Khan Academy, right? The story behind that, where it's just like Saul Khan was basically teaching his cousins, you know, tutoring his cousins in math and just kept repeating himself, like with each cousin, right? He had a big Indian family and was kept repeating himself and People are like, why don't you just make some videos and put them on YouTube and, and send the links out to your cousins and it'll save you a lot of time and energy. And then it was just like light bulb on how to scale it. And then same thing with, um, you know, David Keynes. I don't know if you've, he's a urologist up in the Northeast. Yeah. Keynes is a good friend of mine now. Oh yeah. Well prepped. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, you know, it's his whole thing is stop repeating yourself, you know, like, you know, it's a similar concept with patient education and like you said, I mean, you know, cancer being a very, it's a unique experience, you know, and having gone through it with my, my parents, with my dad having lung cancer during COVID, you know, diagnosed during COVID, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like my mom couldn't be there. My dad's trying to tell, you know, my mom, everything the oncologist said, but it's just, it was, it was incredibly difficult because it's, you you have emotions are high, it's stressful. Plus you're by yourself. It was a, it was a lonely experience for him. And you know, we had to do a lot of stuff via teleconferencing just so that myself and my mom could be there with him to hear what was going on. So what was your next step? Once you kind of found this idea or had this idea, what was your next step in creating your platform? So I really just, um, <clears throat> I just kind of got right to it. I got an, I bought an iPad, bought an Apple pencil and bought a Blue Yeti mic. And I just started recording short versions of if a lung cancer consultation is split up into like eight small explanations, I recorded each of those eight separately. And so built slowly built this library where there was narration from me. And then over the narration was sort of like a digital whiteboard style, not that different from what Khan Academy is. So kind of teaching, uh, syncing up the narration with the visual cues. It's not deep end graphics, CGI type stuff. It's it's very simple. It's basically meant to mimic the stuff that I would draw right there in the room on the exam table paper. So it has a white background and it's mostly black. And then I use just primary colors to fill in for accents and ended up building up a library of about 50 videos that I just built for my own patients. And what I started doing was sending out links to the curated pieces of information to patients by email. But obviously, as you know, there's HIPAA compliance issues related to email, but there's also doctor time issues. So, you know, it's great to be willing and generous enough to give out your personal email or your work email to patients, but you're going to also start, it's a two-way street. They're going to start writing back to you with X, Y, and Z questions, and you may not be monitoring it. And if they actually have an emergency and they think they have access to you via email, that that's a liability risk. So, I really had the idea to build a simple platform that would allow any doctor who wanted to do what I did, turn turn their common explanations into digital assets and give them a platform to send it to patients. So it was a, it was a very simple solution built on top of AWS that 
allowed you to upload your own videos and then send them as links to patients via text message. And then I would send them the day before. So patients and their families would get this text. Single click would bring up the library of videos that was relevant to them. They could watch the videos. And then when they came in to see me in person, they had already had this sort of foundational knowledge experience that was highly curated, highly targeted. And it really, it saved me time during the consult for sure. It definitely boosted patient experience. I mean, they came in telling me in my own words, sort of what needed to happen for them, which was sort of a surreal experience. And so that was, that was a really, really elegant way for me to solve my own problem. But it turned out to a key insight kind of early on was that when I tried to market this and basically sell it to doctors, it's not a business no one's willing to pay for it. I did have a small handful of docs who were like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I'd like, I'd like to do that. And they paid for access to this platform. But then I, I watched to see what happened once they paid and engagement was extremely low. So then I'd follow up and I'd call them and I'd interview them. You know, you paid me for this. Why you're not using it? That was like, let's deal with that. And, and they were all like, you know, it's very obvious, right? Like, well, I, I actually, I don't have time to, to make this stuff. And I don't even have time in my day to log into yet another platform to actively send links to all my patients for tomorrow. So, you know, you could kind of shoehorn it, maybe have your MA, look at the schedule for tomorrow and send out links proactively, but then you risk them sending the wrong stuff. Now you're engaging patients with like incorrect information and the whole thing backfires. So for standard of care stuff, it turned out like it wasn't the first iteration, like was not going to be some like massive breakthrough kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that, that was my next, that was my question was, did you do market research around the idea? But it sounds like you put out this MVP, this minimal viral product, let docs play with it, even though they, they, were, they were paying for it. And, and I mean, in a very smart way, you kind of dove deeper to find out why, you know, why aren't they using it? And, and that feedback, it sounds like was essential. What, what was your next step after that, that kind of realization? I mean, just to, just to back up a step or two, like the, we, I did, I kind of reached out mostly via Twitter to a handful of docs who were kind of following what I was doing for myself to ask them if they would want access to it. And so before I had any developers build a product, I really did take the time to interview people and I got several yeses. People were like, yes, I would pay for that. I would buy that. So I kind of wanted to validate like the problem first, and then uh, people were willing to pay for a potential solution to solve the problem. Then I paid for some overseas developers to do the work of building the software. That was sort of how that, that went down. And then when I saw how poor engagement was, and I sort of had this moment of humility and acknowledging that like, well, maybe I'm sort of the unique one here willing to wake up at five before my kids wake up and be at this iPad and, you know, build 50 <laughs> videos for my patients. And I kind of had this assumption that like other people would do something sort of insane like that. And, um, that was wrong. So we kind of toyed with making the library that I created available to others, but that had I implementation issues as well. And so right around the time where I was kind of interviewing these early customers and discovering that the solution I built was not really solving their problem. I was approached by a, a friend who was a PI on a clinical trial who was kind of following along with what I was building just in terms of the pure content. And he was like, I need this for my trial. Like we have a complex trial. It's hard to explain to patients. The staff are struggling getting their mind around it. And we're going to open it at many sites. So we need to ensure that there's like a standardized good explanation for this. 
and then boom, like the light bulb went off. I was like, this is different. Like clinical trials are complex, but they have a protocol. So you can easily take something. They're not messy. Like standard of care treatment has a lot of variations that are inside the goalpost. Clinical trials are, they are extremely well-defined. And so then the whole business, the case of the business totally shifted away from standard of care kind of stuff and into the clinical trial world. That's super interesting, you know, because like you said, you you needed to validate the problem. And it's funny how what you see as a problem right away and your personal solution to it is not necessarily applicable to other docs, right? And, and I've had that issue as well with Backtable in the, in the I, I may have shared with you before, where the initial problem, like the podcast kind of came out of like, was a complete pivot from the original problem you're trying to solve. And so what's super interesting is how, you know, it was kind of just timing, but also certain individual that was involved that helps you make that realization. Was the traction immediate? Like, how did you shift gears in terms of like how the platform was built or how the platform was presented and how much time did it take to, to kind of change? And it was a matter of just creating new content for these uh, clinical trials. Yeah, at first it was purely a content as a service play. So it was like a full pivot off of the platform. There was an initial agreement where we were going to use the platform, but then once the content was created, I was like, all right, great. So let's fire up with the platform. You can start sending these videos. And and again, it was sort of like, well, neither I, neither I nor my nurses who are working in my multidisciplinary clinic have time to go through and start sending text messages to these patients. Like it's just not going to work into our workflow. So, so the platform really kind of fell off to the background, which is fine because I had like a new willing, you know, customer who was willing to pay. So we were really focused on just solving their problem. And the problem they, they needed solved was like, we need to convert this 40 page informed consent form into a two minute video. That's very easy to understand. So it, it, it pivoted in the short term anyway, it's kind of iterated off of that core offering a few times since, I guess we can get into that later, but like it, it really, at that stage, when we first got into clinical trials, it was pretty much purely content as a service business. Got it. And, and when it's content as a service business, which, which we are in as well, like you can't do that all yourself, right? You're one, you're one person. What was the team that you had to build at that point when you had made that realization? Yeah, great, great point. So right at that, right around that time, so we started having some revenue that was, you know, modest but meaningful. It was actually money coming in. So I hired a full-time assistant, April, and really the first six months, the two of us spent a lot of time building standard operating procedures around each aspect of like the full arc of the content creation process. And then, so, so she's working with me and, and handling so much of like the day to day running of the business, as well as drafting some of the copywriting with me, obviously I'm really doing the final sign off on everything. But then we also needed professional graphics people because we sort of AB tested my hand-drawn graphics, which I, I know it's fine, but it's like, it's not professional looking stuff. So we, we brought in some freelance graphics designers who are medically trained and started using them on each clinical trial product. 
So it's really, it's still a fairly small team. We, we also work with like a fractional sort of COO type of role. And we also have a data analytics who's a contractor um, and then a web developer who's a contractor. And so these people are located in starting, <laughs> like just going down the line, it's like Philippines, Poland, Canada, Ireland, Bay Area, and China. So you can probably relate to that. Yeah, time zones are tricky to navigate. Time zones are tricky, but it's also sort of like there's phenomenal people who you can work with all over the world. And if you're just getting started, there's just an enormous amount of sort of value that you can get for your money when you when you're willing to totally expand, you know, the horizons of what you uh, think about when you're building a business. How did you find those people all over the world? Yeah, so mostly through friends. So a friend of mine who is a writer had written a book and we kind of were talking about the subject of the book and he's the one who put me in touch with, his name's Eric Jorgensen. He wrote this book called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which was extremely influential when I was building initially in 2020. And Eric put me in touch with this company called Athena. I think their website is Athena Go and they source full-time executive assistants who are located in the Philippines. So that, so that's how April and I got linked up. And then the graphics team in Poland, just sending emails. So the app that I was using on the iPad to create my content, at some point I reached out to the CEO to just say, this app is awesome. Like, thank you so much for building this. And he's located in Poland. And then I, later down the road, I reached out to his team and was like, you know, I, I use the color palette here that you guys have on this, on this app. And I really need a graphics person. Do you guys have anyone on your team who would be willing to do contract work? That's how I found them. And then one of my customers in Canada, who's a, you know, an oncologist, put me in touch with some of the people that they use for graphics at the University of Toronto. So, you know, it's just kind of like asking the people who understand what you're doing and say, like, who would you use for this? And they put you in touch and it, and it usually works out. There's kind of mutual skin in the game and it, and it t tends to be a good fit. Yeah, I, I, the reason I ask is, you know, you're right. I mean, kind of using your network and the, the networks of your network to find the right people. And, and it takes time. Sometimes you just have to talk to a lot of people and interview them. And as busy docs, that's challenging as well, right? And so, you know, there's these platforms like Fiverr where you can find gig workers and stuff like that. Those have been hit or miss on our end, but we've lucked out and just, again, it, a lot of times it's like, you know, an acquaintance of an acquaintance. And like you said, if you just are able to tell people what you're trying to accomplish, a lot of times you can find the right people pretty quickly, you know? Totally. Yeah. I, I had also had tried Fiverr and Upwork. I found it to be sort of like patchy quality, sort of uh, a little bit all over the place. And then also a little bit more expensive even than someone who who's coming as like a, sell, like a referral from someone in your network where the price you agree to is maybe not as high as like a one-off, but like if it's a good fit, like you can kind of flatten out that ar that arrangement. And so they're actually doing better in the long run. So I totally agree though. Like that it's mostly network. I mean, we, we here, like just for an example, like our head engineer, our head key producer, Kieran, he, I found him on Upwork like three years ago. And so because Kieran was tuned into this, you know, community of auto engineers, like I found one great person to find several other great people, you know, and it, it, it happens like that, right? You're really trying to tap into a community that's usually it's like fully formed and it's really, there's a lot of internal culture. 
And so as an outsider to think that you're just kind of the golden touch and like pluck like the perfect fit person, this is not going to work. You know, you, you need to really do some legwork to, you know, meet with people and explain what you need them for and, and find the right fit and stuff. Yeah. And so, well, so I want to hear more about like, you know, you found all the right people. What I'm always curious about, because as a content creator and, and you know, we have, you know, a big library ourselves is how to organize it so that people can find what they're looking for relatively quickly, right? How did you go about solving that problem? Yeah, so great, great question. So for the first sort of year and a half that we were building, all the content that I had created was really hidden behind this, like it was on the back end of this web application that I built. So it wasn't public facing except for like social channels. I realized that I was like under leveraging all these assets massively. And so we we hired a developer who's the guy who's in Ireland, and we decided to build in Webflow because it's a no no code website builder that I was relatively familiar with from the early days of building Primer. And he organized just like a beautiful showcase that was easily navigable for patients. And so we kind of shifted the website from being like sales forward to doctors and you know sponsors of clinical trials and made the landing page for it, not that. We made it fully for patients. So we, we put all the content first. So we made we put a search bar right on top, and then we have, just like you would see on YouTube or Netflix, basically like most popular, latest, and then sort of recommended chapters, and then clinical trials and stuff. So as you scroll down, you kind of see the different categories and stuff. But you can also just pop in the search bar like prostate cancer, and that will take you to our prostate cancer library. And we decided to organize it like with all the standard of care videos kind of face forward facing first, but then in a sidebar have featured clinical trials. So all of our customers' trials would be listed there. And they're all IRB approved content. And so each trial has its own sort of landing page within the primer website that has just a short blurb about the trial to describe the trial in plain language, but it also has a form. So if patients are interested in signing up, they can actually reach out and then we will we will screen them and then send a curated referral to the PI of the trial. Kind of nuts. So patients come to learn about standard of care stuff, but then they're finding trials and actually signing up. Yeah, that's amazing. And and so do you wait do you wait for the trials, the PIs to come to you or are you reaching out to PIs or are you even just creating content and then reaching out to PIs? So up until about a month ago, it was all organic inbound. So I started with the one customer and then he referred us to a couple others. And we're pretty aggressive about showcasing the content once it's, you know, once it's done and through the IRB, we blast it all over social channels, like on a daily basis. So we started to get a bit of a following of not just the patients and patient advocates and stuff, but also of PIs and other stakeholders in the implementation and running of clinical trials. So until about a month ago, everything was inbound, organic, but our fractional COO kind of person who I mentioned is actually located in the UK. He's Canadian, but he lives in London. And he started building a, an outgoing sales funnel. So now we're starting to do outbound sales, mostly to PIs, but then you know we're going to kind of hit each customer segment. And that's been pretty interesting. I mean, it's the stuff that obviously they don't teach you down in med school at Tulane. You got to kind of learn as you go. And I've just been lucky enough to have a lot of really awesome advisors who've been patient and giving me a lot of their time and teaching me about each step of this. Yeah. I mean, is the, so the team is kind of international, but, and obviously a lot of these clinical trials are US based. When you look at who's actually consuming the content, is this 
predominantly U.S. or are you seeing more of a global? Do you have that demographic data? We do, yeah. Yeah, that's been the most interesting part is you can really pull this amazing level of detail of engagement analytics. And, and we one of those data points is like geolocation. So we know where people are watching it from. So we know that, well, I haven't checked in a couple of months, but as of like April or so, people had consumed primer content in 48 U.S. states. And I think it was 36 different countries. The vast majority of our viewers are in the U.S., but there's quite a bit of overseas, a lot of representation from the EU and India. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I, I imagine that's going to continue to grow as the world becomes more, we just are able to connect and communicate with one another so much easier. And, and we're, we're just seeing that even out on back table with more docs in more of these conferences becoming more international. You know, you just see more international people at conferences. So I want to find out more about challenges. You know, you just mentioned how we don't learn this stuff in med school. What have been challenges for you that have been what you think as big setbacks? How did you guys overcome it as a, as a company? I would say just like starting with me personally, getting over, I, I know that you've talked to many of your other guests about this, but it's worth repeating because it's mostly a physician audience, but we are hardwired to minimize risk, obviously, in our training, right? So it's not quite flying airplanes, but it's pretty close. So there's almost like a, a zero risk or a, certainly a low risk mentality that's part of our culture. Whereas pivoting or side hustling into entrepreneurship, you have absolutely have to take risk. There's some financial risk, although that was fairly modest because this is a media business. But more importantly, as it relates to like a physician entrepreneur, there's reputational risk. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear how you thought about this. But you know, when you start doing this, there's a risk that your friends and colleagues could look at you and say, well, that's, you know, he's a sellout or, you know, he's just in it for the money or he doesn't, he's not into patient care anymore or something like that. It's not stuff that keeps me up at night. But the thing is, when it gets extremely hard, you absolutely need to fully discard the, any fear of judgment, fully discard fear of failure in public, fear of failure in the culture of your physician network and stuff. Because if you're sort of imprisoned by those fears and anxieties, you just, there's no way you're going to be able to fully commit to the point where you're going to have any sort of takeoff of the business. I completely agree. And it's one of those things where, yeah, I, early on, I definitely had people ghost me, go radio silent because they just didn't, they didn't get it. And it, that's hard to push through. I think being in private practice, I kind of alluded to this earlier. I think private practice kind of helps you a little bit because academic centers, I love my academic colleagues, but my wife's in, it was in academics. It tends to be a little bit more judgy, right? And there's a little bit more of that criticism of anybody doing anything outside the norm, right? And, and us, like you said, we're, we're risk averse. We don't, our comfort zone is the clinical setting, going to work every day, doing our procedures, seeing our patients, that becomes our comfort zone. And anything outside of that is even, I mean, I think financially, like you said, it's not that big of a deal. It, it is reputation. In fact, I've talked to a bunch of people on the show about what do you do when you want to take a break when, from medicine and just focus entirely on this, right? I've talked to David Keynes about it. I've talked to 
Elliot Street, Chris Mancy from biz.ai. And some people are just like, Aaron, you got to leave it behind. If this is really what you're really, this is what you wake up to do, then like you, you leave that, the medicine behind and you focus on this. Others are like, you know what? That's a little bit too risky. I want to balance it out. I think that they complement one another. And I do think that they complement one another, especially in your case and my case. So how did you know when you, asking for a friend, right? So how did you know when, <laughs> when you crossed over that threshold that for several years for most people, for you, for me, for Keynes, you know, we're, we're kind of, we know there's a line out there somewhere where you're, you're balancing both. You're doing clinical, but you're also really passionate about building something bigger that's outside of the clinical world. Was there an event in your life or something triggered you to, you know, move to Paris and, and completely throw yourself into this back table? Yes. And it was COVID, to be honest. I mean, my wife and I will both tell you that we, something just, I mean, and I think this happened for a lot of people where you just like, what were we doing before? Because every, everything slowed to a standstill, right? And all of a sudden we're like riding bikes with our kids and our kids know who we are and they're, you know, we're enjoying our day to day. And both my wife and I cut back to part-time clinical work immediately following COVID. And we were like, this is where it's at. This is much better. And I had more time to focus on back table during COVID. And I realized this is what is really impactful and what I, I find because COVID stopped clinical work for a temporary period of time, right? Like we went from like 100% to like for like a whole month, I don't think I saw any patients and then started slowly getting back into it. And for that month and for like, you know, a few months afterwards, I was putting a lot more energy in the back table. And that's where it kind of was just like, oh, this is something I could really see myself spending a lot more time on and not to mention my family. And I think priority wise, the clinical work dropped to that number three space. You know, I still enjoy it. I still want to participate in it. It's just not, I, I just get so much, it goes back to like what gives energy and what takes energy. Well, back table gives me energy. Clinical work starting to, you know, I'm in that like mid career phase where it started to wear on me. And especially during that COVID period and, um, and just seeing all the, just how broken the healthcare system is. We've all watched that sort of unfold. It just, was it, it wasn't as much of a priority, and so I, I think the short answer to your question is it was really COVID that helped was the was the catalyst, you know? Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. That I mean, that was as I was saying earlier, that was sort of the impetus for for me just getting started on this, and then as we kind of roll out of COVID and into whatever we are in now, it, it's more just finding ways to maximally leverage like a distributed team and the technology available so that I can do both because I do still, I still enjoy both. Uh, and I'm also, uh, to be totally candid, like not pulling a salary from primer, you know, so everything that we make gets reinvested in the business to grow the business and build a team, not really an option at this point, but. Well, and that that's to come, right? I mean, that's, it's all part of the evolution, right? And that was me for five years. I didn't, you know, make any money. And it, you know, you get to a point where the company's making enough revenue, you should start paying yourself. My co-founder and my like my partners at Backtable were all like, "It makes sense for you to start actually paying yourself because otherwise you're going to burn out on this." And you're, you're, you know, what I mean, like I didn't have time to make money doing clinical work because I was spending so much time at Backtable, and so and now I do, I still do both, right? I still do locums work, 
I still read uh, imaging, but it's not, I don't make any even close to what I made as a full-time physician. Am I, am I happier? Yes. Because I enjoy what I'm doing a hundred percent. Right. Well, I think that's, so if we kind of like go a little deeper into the psychology, you talked about the, some features of like the academic persona and some of those are totally noble and worth pursuing. And thank God we have people who are dedicating their lives to building the next big medicine or trial and testing it in a systematic way. But then in the private practice world, a lot of the culture is built around optimizing historically anyway, your income, like at all costs, you know, more, oh, we're busy, we're busier. You know, it's like, well, what is that? It's nice to have some more money. Everybody wants to have money and not have to worry about like buying groceries for their kids. And it's nice to go on a vacation every so often, but obviously you know, there's tons and tons of data that shows that more money actually leads to like less happiness. So I think what you're doing is a great, and, and also like the sharing your voice and your candid views is like doing a great service to our, for our community to just help normalize. It's okay to reprioritize your life around not optimizing purely for income and actually finding something that is perhaps like a more authentic expression of like the full scope of like your med- your medical training, but also your personality, your interests, your natural, your passions and your talents. It's not the case that everybody should fit into some exact bucket of like a private practice interventional radiologist or radiation oncologist, whatever the case may be. I totally agree, man. I mean, you're selling yourself short if you're not taking full advantage. I mean, when you're when you're a 100% physician in private practice, grinding it out, and and then you have family time on top of that. And you're, you know, you have all you have family stuff. You're trying to even just balance those two things. Where's the time for a creative outlet? And if you are an individual who that used to be a major part of your life, like and it always was in my life until I started residency. Actually until I started practice. Because even in residency I took time to do photography and other creative outlets. But all of a sudden, you're a full-time doc, and it's like everything else goes by the wayside, and that's just not a, that's just not a quality of life. Like, what is that? And it's like you said, it's because a lot of these practices are optimized. It's all it's you get into that keeping up with the Joneses, right? It's very cliche to say, but it's it's golden handcuffs all the way, and that's how we get stuck. And that's why I see my generation and older, everybody I talk to, they're all trying to go part-time right now. That's interesting, and I think. Even the new grads are, they're probably even way ahead of us than when we started, you know, and they're, they're really trying to optimize for that balance and, and lifestyle. It's interesting because at our hospital, you know, if you looked at our volume that our practice sees, like we could probably be minus one doc, but we made the decision to keep fully staffed with four docs, but have a much better lifestyle. And that, that's been amazing for me. I mean, to have one day off before starting primer. You know, just have this day where I would build a tomato house and a vegetable garden and, and in the winter, like take my kids skiing and play hooky from school and do stuff like that. And I still find time. I still carve out time to do fun stuff with my kids on my, on that day off. I try to book primer stuff in the mornings and then, and then we do fun stuff in the afternoons. And it, it's been, I, I wouldn't trade hundreds of thousands of dollars for that. There's no, it's, it's not even a blink thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not even close. Well, the other the other catalyst, Dave, was was my my dad died. My dad was diagnosed during COVID, right, twenty twenty. Lived about six months, died, and you know, 
And I'm like, and he, he was retired for what, three or four years, right? So, and he lived it up, you know, he did what he was wanting to do, but I'm thinking, what, what, you know, what are we, what are we, what am I waiting for? You know? Well, I mean, you're, you're technically retired now, not in the sense that you have like white shoes and you play golf at some, uh, assisted living facility in Florida. But the fact that like, you don't really have to be anywhere at any time, you're doing exactly what you want and you're getting paid to do it. That's retirement. Yeah. Sort of, you know, answer to myself. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, those, those things we got off on a tangent, but I appreciate, I appreciate the discussion and I'm sure we can take it offline and, and talk about more, but I do, as we got like five minutes left, I want to ask you a couple more things. One is it's gotta be really difficult to keep up with the latest information studies. Like how do you have a clinical team of that's helping you with this or is it just it's purely coming from the PIs in terms of the information and then how how do you keep stuff fresh on the platform so all the clinical trial content sorry i just shifted to my seat and just start over on that one um, all the clinical trial content that we create is actually custom made and commissioned so the process for staying up on the latest and greatest stuff is sort of built into the workflow of like our bringing on a new customer. When we have a new trial, it's because someone hired us to build the content for that. So the way that, you know, we do the copywriting first. So I basically use just like my clinical background to take the either the protocol itself or the publicly available information about it and turn it into a script. And so we have a, a whole bunch of standard procedures for like the actual script writing process to make sure it's in lay language and, and all these kinds of things. So I take the first whack at the pinata with the script writing, and then we just have the benefit of we collaborate with the PI. So these are the people who actually wrote the trial. They're, they're the ones who did the trials that led to that trial. So th there's no one better on earth to help us refine the script and make sure it's clear and accurate than the people who've hired us to build the content. So it's really cool because I really have a seat at the table with with this with the you know the biggest most cutting edge latest trials. It's it's really fun to to collaborate with these folks. And then and then from there once they sign off on it, it all has to go off to the IRB and then then we we send them kind of the storyboards and the final graphics and stuff. So there there really is a very systematic and repeatable stepwise process for that now. So it's it's less like constantly scanning the waterfront for like what's coming, what's coming, and more like the intake and workflow of a new customer necessarily requires that like we, we get up to speed on whatever that is. Yeah, then that I imagine much like me with having guests on the show, it helps you keep up, right? I mean, probably more so than a lot of, I keep knocking on academic people, I don't mean to, but like we don't have conferences, you know, we don't have daily conferences in private practice. So how do we keep up? A lot of people struggle. I mean, before I had Backtable, like, you know, you might go to one conference a year. And so that's why I like this format. And that's why I enjoy these conversations because it helps me keep up without feeling like I'm like not connected to my specialty. I feel that since, I mean, I know that since I started building Primer, my knowledge of what is coming in terms of like oncology care is way more comprehensive and up to speed than it was when I was just like a heads down private practice guy who was, you know, spending his free time building tomato cages to keep the squirrels out. <laughs> it was lovely, but like it was just, but I, I feel way more dialed in yeah. as a physician with this. Absolutely. 
Totally agree. Well, well, David, any last thoughts as we finish up on, uh, thank you so much for sharing the story and like, we'll, we'll definitely put links to the platform in our show notes, but any, any last final thoughts or any suggestions for the audience, any docs who are looking to maybe start their own side business? Yeah. So, I mean, discarding the willingness to fail or discarding the fear of failure, I should say. So discarding any fear of failure and public failure is is just the key thing if you're thinking about stepping out there and and starting something on the side. For anyone who is interested in doing it, I mean, I'm not too deep into it yet. I'm about three years or so, but I'm I'm always more than happy. I really enjoy the conversations I have with fellow physicians who who are trying to build something bigger. So I welcome any outreach, whether it's by email, LinkedIn, Twitter are probably the best places to get me. This is how I started to build the friendships with you, Aaron, and also with people like David Keynes, who you mentioned earlier. So you know, just just reach out. I'm happy to chat. And Shiv Gagalani, too. Didn't you, you, did you get a chance to connect with Shiv? I did, yeah. So he's back in med school now, so I think he's busier than ever. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. He's like Energizer Bunny. Yeah. That guy. Well, David, uh, thank you so much again for coming on the show, and thanks to the audience for listening. We'll catch you next week. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Amaker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.